have been studying through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I want to remind you of just a little bit of context to get to where we are today in verse 18, but we have previously studied two separate and significant events in the book of Mark, and the first was right in the beginning in chapter 2, Jesus healed a quadriplegic man, his friends lowered him through a roof in the middle of the Jesus conference, and Jesus stopped, forgave him of his sin, and healed him. And we also, after this, saw another event where Jesus called a tax collector named Levi to follow him. And it was just a little later on that Levi threw him a party and all of his tax collector friends came and it said that they followed him as well. It's a very powerful story. And we see that these events drew the religious leaders, the Pharisees, presence and attention. And here's something we know. They were offended at Jesus. Uh, There are reasons that they were offended. They're not right reasons, but to them they were, but they were offended at Jesus. They were offended that Jesus would say to the quadriplegic man, your sins are forgiven, because that would be, in a sense, a claim of deity. No one can forgive sins but God. Jesus was God the Son. He could say that. They didn't believe clearly who he was. And so they were offended at this. And then they were also offended that Jesus would have dinner with sinners. They, they did not like this because you don't mix and mingle with people of this kind. They very much were exclusionists. They were not inclusive. But Jesus was into changing people's lives. He wasn't just having uh, dinner with sinful people. He was looking at them as a target of his love and mercy. And as a result of him being with those people, they changed. And the Pharisees couldn't see that. They didn't understand it. So they were offended at Jesus. And there are five confrontations that Jesus has with the religious leaders in chapter two and three. Now, we've only read two, but now we're going to read number three today. Uh, And without further ado, let's go ahead and read verses 18 through 22. Here's what the Bible says. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. And he gives uh, two metaphors here for what he's saying. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In our previous passage, Jesus and his disciples were questioned about what they were doing. Why are you eating with these people? Now, if you see this in the passage here, they're being questioned about what they're not doing. Why are you not doing what we're doing? And so it really doesn't matter if it's something they're doing or something they're not doing. They clearly have a problem. The people that represented God in Jesus's day constantly had a problem with what they did and what they did not do. The tension is unavoidable. And Jesus's response about fasting, friends, is not about fasting. Uh, In fact, today, I'm not going to talk to you about fasting very much because that isn't really what this confrontation is about. There's a truth underneath the issue that is being questioned. And often that is really what's happening. The tension that we feel between the religious leaders and Jesus is not usually about the issue that's being brought up. It's what goes underneath it. And it really is because of who Jesus is and they have not accept that, nor do they. But there's a few points that I think are very important uh, as a way of observation that we can talk about today. And the first one is this from verse 18. Jesus's way was in conflict with their traditions. Uh, Let me read this again. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. Why are you not fasting? And let me just remind you again, their question is not about theology or the theology of fasting. Their question is based on their tradition. Why do we know that? 
Because in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31, there is only one time in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel was commanded to fast. Just one day, and that's on the Day of Atonement. This was holy to the Lord. And this was the day where the high priest would come before the presence of God and go into the Holy of Holies, which was the most holy place in the temple, and had to go through this prescribed set of rituals in order to even do that, but would make atonement for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation of Israel. This was a very important day. And so leading up to the point where the priests would do that, the nation would fast for 24 hours. Everybody fasted. It was a command of the Lord, but this is the only command for fasting in the Old Testament. And so what we have, though, is in different situations and circumstances, there are prophets and kings that will call the people of God to fast. But this is in response to something that they're facing. It is not by command. It is response to what they're facing. And so you have fasting from a command of God. You have fasting as a response to to God and seeking him. And then you also have fasting as a discipline. What we're talking about and what the Pharisees are asking about in reference to them, the disciples and Jesus versus John's disciples and the Pharisees is that this is the discipline that they have. Why don't you hold the same discipline? And it's very important to make this, um, to understand and distinguish between the command versus the practice. Jesus and his disciples did adhere to fasting on the day of atonement like everybody, But the Pharisees practiced fasting twice per week. They fast on Monday and Thursday. They prayed three times a day. And the purpose of fasting is to humble ourselves before God, to lay aside food for a day in order to seek God, his word, and his ways. Well, the Pharisees often went to great lengths to make sure everybody knew how spiritual that they were. Uh, Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6, and he basically calls it false religious practices, or at least that's the way that I would say it. But look what Jesus said about the same people that are asking him about why they're not doing this practice. Jesus said in verse 16 of Matthew 6, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Friends, who are the hypocrites? The people that are asking the question here in Mark 2. And they might've just realized that Jesus was talking about them, but that'd be sort of a strange day, wouldn't it? Like Jesus is making a claim, he's teaching a sermon and you're realizing as it's being spoken, you're the one he's referencing, not a happy day for them. Don't do what the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. In other words, they fast because they want people to think that they're spiritual. They're not doing it to seek God. They're not doing it for the purpose of fasting. They're fasting because they want other people to know just how spiritual they are. I am very spiritual. Truly, I say to you, those people have their reward in full. They want people to notice them and people are noticing them, but they're not getting anything from God because they're not actually acting in a way where they're moving toward God. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret or what is done in secret will reward you. And one translation says, reward you openly. Here's what we want to say today. The practice of fasting must be based on the purpose of fasting. The reason is more important than the routine, but the Pharisees had lost that. And that is what we're trying to say today is sometimes in tradition, we can actually lose the substance for which the tradition originally started. And this is what has really happened in the Pharisee's life. And it's led to this conflict with Jesus Christ, the son of God, to the point where they're actually questioning Jesus, God, the son. And John's disciples are the same. Now, John the Baptist is in prison at this time, but he still has disciples who, for whatever reason, have not decided to follow Jesus. And they sort of link up on this particular discipline with the Pharisees. And they all wanted to know why. Why are you not doing what we're doing? Why are you not doing things the right way? Why are you not following the right path? Why are you not like we are? Well, there's one answer I can give you for that. Jesus does not always honor our tradition. I had one eight. That was good. Somebody said amen over in this section. I'm going to go over here. I mean, you don't have to say amen. I don't, there's no hype, but a tradition is what? It's a long established custom or belief passed on from one generation to another. 
I think sometimes we can treat tradition like it's entirely bad, and that's not true. Some tradition is fine. I think some tradition is, is just fine, but there are many traditions that actually lose the substance, and I think tradition can get in the way of truth at times, and Jesus does not always honor our traditions. He's not always as concerned about our traditions. He wants us to know the difference between the clear command of the Bible versus the traditions that we tend to hold to in the way that we express our spiritual life before God, the way that we seek God, the things that we do for God. Sometimes those are our way and they're not necessarily bad, but they're not the way. They're not the only way. If it's not a clear command of the Bible, we have to be very careful that our tradition doesn't get in the way of truth. And with a few thousand years of church history, friends, there are lots of traditions that we have. Would you just say amen because it's true? There are a lot of different traditions that we all hold. Some of you were raised Presbyterian, some Lutheran, some Catholic, some Baptist, some Reformed, some Pentecostal, Calvinist, Armenianist. Can I keep going or do you just know what I'm saying? And some of us, we were told that this is the way to do this. This is the way to practice this kind of a thing. The way we do communion, the way we practice prayer, worship, Advent, Lent, Palm Sunday, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. Don't call it Easter, it's Resurrection Sunday. All right. Now, I have found out because every now and again, I step on a landmine and realize that I didn't know some folks had traditions. I thought I was a good Christian and then found out really quickly that's not how people do things. That's not how we should do it. And, and I'm not trying to be mean. Listen, I love everybody, you know? I mean, it's great. But I didn't grow up certain ways. I didn't become a Christian until I was almost 20. We didn't have a lot of traditions in our home. And so, yes, I've gone without a lot of those things. And then I became a Pentecostal. And, and it's a mixed bag when you're in the Pentecostal church because you're never quite sure where anybody comes from and what they uh, believe. But I remember coming, uh, coming into church and not understanding what the season of Lent was about because I, was, I didn't... I went to a church, you know, once or twice a month growing up, but we never practiced that. And then I came to a church where they did, and I thought, what's Lent? And then I did the cardinal sin. I actually studied the history of it. And don't you know, when you start studying the history of some of these things, you kind of find out that there's some things in there that aren't in the Bible. There's some things in there that like, you know, we never, see, you don't even want to do this because I'm messing with you now. But if you actually start studying some of the stuff based on our traditions, you realize that it came from somewhere and it came from someone. And then you discover the root of it and you go, why do we still do this? And that's actually a really good question. Some of us don't even know why we light candles at Advent or where that came from, or what denomination that came from. And it really does matter which denomination you came from, because if you're Methodist, you do it this way, and if you're Lutheran, you do it this way, and if you're Orthodox, you do it that way. And friends, that's why it's one big happy family in the body of Christ. When you come to Foursquare, you just never know who you're sitting next to. We believe the Bible, though. You understand? We believe the clear commands of Scripture, and that's what we have to stick to. But our traditions can often get in the way. They can often get in the way. I I want you to hear this. It can get in the way. It doesn't mean that traditions are bad, but they can be when we use them as a filter to look down on other people in the way that they love Jesus and others. And that's where traditions are a weapon of the enemy instead of something to enhance our spirituality. Friend, I, I hope you're hearing because this is really important today. Look at the conflict that the Pharisees constantly had with Jesus. Was it really about scripture? Was it really about the commands? I mean, Jesus is the word that became flesh. You think he knew the Bible and yet they're the ones questioning him. Why do you not do things the way that we do? Well, there's a real good answer because I am the way. It's not about your way. And sometimes our way needs to be changed, challenged, questions need to be asked. And that's what we often have. You know, when I first came here, I found out that Northwest Church has some traditions. And I so wanted to honor our previous pastor. I really did. And I wanted to honor you with all of my heart. I'll just be really honest with you. I am a person that believes in honor. 
That's my highest, that's my higher principle. But I found that there were things for the last 20 years as a Christian and 18 of that as a pastor, I had never done until I came here. And so I started to make a few changes and I made one change. Can I talk about it? Are you okay? Everybody breathe. I love you and you love me. So we're good. It's two and a half years, friends. It's still, I've been here two and a half. It's time to do it. But I really wanted to honor Pastor Steve and Mary. I didn't want to mess with anything. You understand? I love them just like you do. And I love you. But I didn't practice some of the things. And it was uncomfortable for me because now I'm supposed to perform the thing that I don't understand. And some people would say, well, you just need to understand it because it's the better way. It's the way we do it. And I was like, well, what about the way that I did it? You just got to discard that. That's your wineskin. Leave it at home. Nobody ever said that, but that's how I felt. You understand? And, and so I changed communion. I took it from after, you know, in the back of the service and I put it into worship. And I remember the weekend that I did that. It was like, wow, <laughs> I had some vocal response right away. And, and uh, listen, I didn't know, call, calling myself ignorant here, I didn't know it was going to be a big deal. And, and I had a bunch of conversations about that. And I'm thankful that, you know, we talked about it, right? And did you, some of you just didn't storm out, you know, thank you for talking to me. But I also got to present uh, a different version. And let me just tell you, I've been to over 200 churches and we do things differently. And I want to tell you one of the, one of the way, one of the things that happens to us is we look down on others because the way we do it is better than the way that they do it. And this type of arrogance gets nowhere with Jesus. It gets nowhere with Jesus. You can have preferences. We can have preferences. You understand? You might like different style of music than I do. You might like different kind of songs than I do, but Jesus doesn't care. He just looks at the heart. Are you actually worshiping me? When I first got saved, I went to a certain church. I won't tell you what kind because, you know, protect the guilty. But I went to a certain kind of church and they were King James only. So they believed that the King James Bible was the only, and I didn't know this, by the way, I was just saved. You know, I just was brand new Christian. I was blind and now I can see. I was dead and now I'm alive. And I didn't know people had this kind of an argument in church. I was just glad to have a Bible. Somebody bought me an NIV a new international version. It wasn't a BIV. It wasn't Ben's international. It was an NIV. And I was reading that thing every day of my life. I mean, I was tearing through it. I was on the bus going to work at, in, down in Seattle, and I was tearing through the Bible. I'd never read the Bible. And now I'm tearing through the Bible. I'm in, I end up at this church, and they're going through the book of Jeremiah, and I'm like, this is exciting. And I bring my Bible, and this is no joke. I can say it now because I doubt they listen to me. But I had my Bible on my chair, and we were, they sing only hymns there, so we were singing hymns, and they took a King James Bible, and they put it on top of my NIV, and during worship, this whole row of people were laughing at me, and, and I literally, okay, I came out of drug addiction and immorality and all this crazy stuff, so for me, when I saw them do that, I turned around, and li- I mean, I had, you know I had been delivered at this point, I turned around, I took the King James Bible, I put it on, this literally happened, I, I wish I was joking, I put it on the other chair, I got my NIV and I walked out of that church and they walked into the foyer and they tried to stop me. I'd been there for seven months and I walked out and I said, I can't do this religious game with you people. And that was the last time I ever went to that church because I wasn't gonna do that, you understand? Like I came too far, I came out of all this stuff and for them in the middle of worship, I actually read that Bible, right? And so I had, I had this thing where I'm like, I'm not gonna play this game with these people. This is one of the reasons why folks don't come to church is because people have made it about the thing and not about him. They've made it about their version of the Bible and not about reading the Bible. It's like, oh, we're so glad that you're saved and sanctified and delivered and that you, you know, and you really mean well and you're reading your little new international version and that's like, kind of like the action Bible, but you know, let's come on over to the King James and it was very patronizing and very religious and very arrogant and, and they had all their traditions and they missed the fact that somebody like me who just eight, nine, 10 months ago had come from such a far way. I don't know if they had seen a salvation like mine ever. And yet here I am and I'm bringing people at my workplace and I'm, you know, and you understand. And, and something that, that happened to me during that time is I realized that like, this is the same stuff that we get drafted into today if we're not careful. It just happens. You know, a husband and his wife were in their kitchen one time and the husband was sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper while his wife was preparing a ham for dinner. 
And the husband watched the wife cut off about one inch from either end of the ham. And he asked, why did you cut the end off? That's a waste of good ham. And she said, that's the way my mom did it. And the husband said, well, why did your mom do that? And the wife said, I don't know. And later, the wife called her mom to find out why she did this. And she said, well, that's the way that my mom did it. And the wife's grandma had passed away several years earlier, but the grandpa was still alive. So she called her grandpa and she said, grandpa, why did grandma cut the ends off of the ham? And he was silent for a moment and he thought about it. And he said, well, the reason that she did that was because we had a very small pan and a small oven. So in order for it to fit in the pan and fit in the oven, we had to cut off the ends. Tradition. I had like 10 more of those, but I thought you'd get the point right up front. I've heard this story before. It's a good one. Sometimes we do things because that's just the way we've done them. It's a wine skin, but it's not the wine. It's a wine skin, but it's not the wine. Wine skins can be discarded, but we want the wine. If you want the real substance, sometimes we have to realize it ain't about the wine skin. And we can easily make it that. And really the danger in this is not that we do or don't have traditions. It's not bad for the Pharisees to have a tradition of fast Mondays and Thursdays. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the way that they were using their tradition to filter how they saw other people. And you know what that's called? That's called legalism. Tradition can often lead to a path of legalism. The religious leaders had an entire book of tradition that was passed down in the Jewish community. I've shared that with you before. It's called the Mishnah, where they sort of improved on some of the biblical commands. The one biblical command that we'll study next week is about Sabbath. And so they took Sabbath, which in the Bible would say, do no work on the Sabbath day. I mean, that's really simple, but that wasn't enough. And so they developed a whole grid on what this meant. 39 different categories in the oral law. In those categories, there are multiple commands on what you can and cannot do depending on this kind of work that you have. And so if you're a farmer, you can't do this and you can do that. And if you're a fisherman, you can do this and you can't do that. And if you're a person that weaves together fabric, you can't do this and you can do that. You can't walk this far, but you can walk this far. I mean, they really got it down to the microns. The macro was not enough. And I've shared with you my personal view is that when something categorically in the Bible is stated to do no work, God purposely meant it to be like that so that we could walk out our relationship with him. But it's not enough sometimes, and so we have to figure out all all the way down to the microns. Now, again, if a person develops a tradition in their life on how it is that they're going to live that command out, that's fine, but it cannot become a filter by which they judge other people. That's called legalism, and that is the danger that we can often come into if we're not careful. It's what Jesus confronted, which we'll read later in Mark 7, But when he deals with the religious leaders in a very serious way, he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. And listen to this quote. He speaks this straight to them. These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know what he's after? He's after the heart. Sometimes a person's spirituality doesn't look as good as somebody else's on the outside, but Jesus sees the heart. And when he sees the heart, he'll say things like he does when you look at the publican who's on his knees in the temple and you look at the tax or you look at the Pharisee. And Jesus said, there's one that left um, that was satisfied by, justified before God and the other was not. The Pharisee who was praying out loud, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here. I mean, he, he just thought in all of his eloquence and his way of talking and his way of being and his right standing with God that he was justified. But there was another man in that same moment who was on his knees saying, he couldn't even look up to heaven. Forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man left justified and this one didn't. One had a way of praying. The other one didn't even know how to pray, but he expressed his heart. And Jesus said, this man is the one that was heard. This man was not. He had literally entered into legal, a legalism that gives way to arrogance. Let me say it to you like this. Tradition needs to be challenged at times. Questions should be asked so we don't become legalistic. And let me tell you what I'm not saying, because in our world, it's very popular to call everything legalism. And so there's a, this is a double-edged sword. I believe in living principled Christian lives. I do. 
I believe, I encourage this. I think it's right for me and us to teach a principled way of living before God. Being a disciple is a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ, something that can be seen. I mean, if we really are followers of Jesus, he even said himself that there will be fruit on the tree. Uh, There's an outward manifestation of an inward reality. And so we have to be, but here's the difference. I have a certain way of being. Dixons, they go to church every week. Dixons pray. Dixons read their Bible. This is the DNA and the vision of our home. I absolutely unashamedly teach principles that are based on scripture. I can prove a lot of these things from scripture, but we have a certain way. I don't just read the Bible, but I underline, I highlight, I journal every day as well. I pray through the Lord's prayer. When people say, how do you pray? I pray the way Jesus taught to pray. In fact, I don't understand why we don't use what Jesus taught. Jesus said, when you pray, say. I mean, gosh, he gave us an open book test. Like you, if you don't know how to pray, start there. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be there in your name, your kingdom. Anyways, you understand. And so I pray that, but I pray it expansively. I expound on it. I use not, not a liturgy, but I expand and expound from the Lord's prayer. So I have principles that I follow and I follow them every day. I do have days that I fast. I do have things that I do. We as a church do have two yearly fasts that we do. There's nothing wrong with this until we use those things to put other people down. See, there's a difference between living a principled life before God and then using whatever your principles are of living before God as a way to put other people down and lift yourself up. That's illegal, that's wrong, that's legalism, and that's what we see in the passage. No, let's not forget the actual passage starts with them coming to Jesus saying, why don't you do what we do? Implication, we're doing right, why aren't you? Why aren't you doing what's right? Why aren't you doing things the right way? And Jesus doesn't seem to be too kind to that. When legalism takes over, truth becomes hollow as we exchange ritual for reality. And when it comes to obeying scripture, we need to be clear and convicted about what it says and that we're following it. Legalism has a fruit that we do not want. The fruit is exclusionism, judgment, pride. It's preservation over transformation. All of this, this is what legalism feels like. It looks like, it smells like, and none of us really like it. None of us really want it. But at the end of the day, it is, there is a seduction. I think there's a seduction towards the zealous Christian. I've talked to you about my story, but when I came to Christ, man, I was on fire for God. I really was. And I had to leave all my old friends behind. I tried to get them saved. That didn't happen. So I just went for God and I was going to church five days a week, different churches, right? They had the Bible there. I was there. I still love the Bible just as much and even more clearly. But I mean, it was, uh, I was so excited and I'd go to the church and I'd just be that irritating person like, yeah, this is amazing. Like you guys are excited. And they're like, man, calm it down, buddy. Bring it down a notch. Come down to DEFCON 1. You're not always going to be that excited. Man, were they wrong? You know, you're, you know they, were, they were off. And then six months later, I got baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that was a whole nother thing, you know. Uh, at first, I started in a church that didn't believe in that stuff, and then when I went to another church that believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I actually experienced that, I mean, I was on a whole nother place, like, wow. Uh, and, uh, and, and I love to talk about Jesus. And I was really confused why Christians who said they love God and love the word did not want to do what the word said or didn't want to talk about Jesus. I thought, why don't we want to talk about Jesus? It's all about him. You know, I mean, I didn't, I hated people and, and hated God before I met Jesus. And now I love God and I love people and I don't get the religious thing. I was like, why are we not fired up? Why are we not? And you know what happened to me? This is the cardinal seduction for the zealous Christian is to move into a place of arrogance and legalism and judgment. And yes, that's what happened to me. Absolutely. I got taken over by judgment. That was my sin. And this, this, it took me six months to get there. It took me, in tw- by 12 months, I mean, I was judging people. It was my sin of choice. And you start to think, I'm a great Christian and everybody else isn't. You start to, the, I understand the Pharisee. I'm not knocking them. I get that. I get that heart, that crusty religious heart that wants to make myself feel like I'm better than other people. And it is just the flesh on steroids. It's this manifestation of, of I'm a better person. And you would never say, you'd never say out of your mouth, I'm just a better Christian than the rest of you. 
You probably... See, it doesn't fit very well, you know. It's like a coat that doesn't, shouldn't, doesn't fit. It's terrible. But, but I'm just sort of saying it because that's what this is like. Legalism and, and arrogance is just so powerful. And we can become this way when we enshrine the how and not the what. When we enshrine the how and not the what. I, I've given myself to legalism early on, and it took several years to identify it and get rid of it um, and move on from it. But I, yeah, I mean, I got, let me just, my name is Ben. I got caught up in legalism. By God's grace, I've been set free. Judging people, you know, Christians can't do this and Christians shouldn't do that. And yeah, I have principles that I live by, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, no excuses for clear commands of Scripture. We live by what Scripture teaches. But I moved those things into a place of filtering others' Christianity. And all it did was distance me from others. It didn't help me disciple anybody. It distanced me from the very people that God called me to be family with and love and through relationship um, begin to serve and also learn from. And God wants us to realize there's a danger here. Friends, there's a danger here for us, not just for the Pharisee, but as we judge them, let us judge ourselves at the same time. And the second point is Jesus's way had a different theological interpretation. Here's Jesus's response in verse 19 to their question. And by the way, if you don't know what bridegroom means, it just means groom. So just take away the word bride. It's an ancient way of saying groom. So whenever I say that, just think groom. It's very strange. We never use that uh, term today. But any, anyhow, um, Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost, the skins as well but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Jesus is not breaking away from tradition because he's against tradition. He's just confronting the issues are, that are at hand, and he has a different theological interpretation. And Jesus is, is always right, of course, uh, but he's bringing them beyond fasting. And this is much deeper, and there's two things that I think he's really alluding to here. He's not fully conveying the truth, which he will actually spell out in later chapters, but he's alluding to it. In the first one, Jesus alluded to the first and second coming of the Messiah. The typical perspective for all Jewish people would be the Messiah would come, he'd be recognized by all, he'd rise up in power, he'd overthrow governments, and he would call Israel to rule and reign along his, their, uh, his side. Uh, this, was, this was the concept, the theological understanding they had. They did not believe in a first and a second coming. Uh, they did not believe in a suffering servant and a conquering king. Uh, they didn't understand the first coming of Jesus was about the message of the kingdom uh, being spread throughout the world that every knee could bow and people would have a legitimate opportunity to choose Christ, the king, and come to him of their own free will, and that, that this would be the first era. This would be this in-between time, the now and the not yet. He comes, he gives his message and his ministry to his disciples. They spread that, and then he comes back for those that have bowed their knee and confessed him as Lord. They, they didn't get that. There was no concept there. It's, it's something that we have extrapolated from the Old Testament now because we're looking at it and we're seeing as Jesus began to interpret the Messiah's coming because he came and we get it. But we know that from this language, Jesus uses the metaphor of a wedding in alluding to the first and second coming. Why don't you fast? Well, we, we're not fasting because the groom is with them. The disciples just learned that they're the attendants of the groom. Like Jesus is saying this in response to them and they're like, oh, are we, are we the attendants? We're the attendants of the groom. You're the groom. He's not saying it clearly, but he's alluding to it. The attendants and the groom. And he's saying, we are in a place of celebration right now. Oh, there will come a time where the Messiah will be taken away. And this language taken away was borrowed from the very passage that we reference in Good Friday and of course, when it comes to the suffering servant of Jesus, Isaiah 53, 8, it says, by oppression and judgment, he, the Messiah, was taken away. 
He's using the same verb, the same tense. He's foreshadowing what is about to happen. He's speaking of his death and he's saying the time will come when they will fast. Listen, we're still living in the time of fasting. We are still living in the time of fasting because we are longing for and awaiting our coming Messiah, his second return as the conquering king to receive those that have named him as Lord. This is a day of fasting still. And Jesus is actually saying that he's foreshadowing what is about to take place, although he's not spelling it out clearly. And the second theological interpretation here is that Jesus was establishing a new covenant. When he refers to himself as the groom, he is saying, I am the Messiah. Now check this out. The Old Testament imagery of the groom or the husband was God's relationship with Israel. So if Jesus is saying that he's the groom, the disciples are the attendants, and the Old Testament imagery is where Yahweh is the husband, Yahweh is the groom, guess what that means? Jesus is explicitly saying, it might be seem veiled to them, but that he is God. You don't say these things that reference God in the Old Testament and apply them to yourself without making a claim of deity. He does it again and again. This is why I'm always confused when people say that Jesus never explicitly said that he was God. When Jesus never referred to himself as God or having oneness with God, how can you look at these passages and not think that? They thought that, they knew that Jesus was God the Son. We, of course, are, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this great mystery, but we understand the oneness of God, that there's a reality to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus claims that deity. The New Testament metaphor that's used with Jesus in relation to the church is that he's the husband. Jesus did not come to reform Judaism. He came to reconstruct it to its original foundation and build on it. He uses the metaphors, no one sews unshrunk cloth on old material. It will tear and ruin both eventually. This is the old covenant and the new covenant. They are not compatible in their functionality of working together. One is built on the other. The new testament or the new covenant is built on the old. He says, nobody pours new wine into old wineskins. It will burst the skin and you will lose both. If Jesus were speaking in modern terms, because I, I tried to buy a wineskin, by the way. Uh, they're called bocas. Usually you get the Spanish version of them, but I tried to get one and I didn't get it in time. So it's going to arrive tonight. <laughs> and uh, my wife's going to wonder, why did you buy a wineskin? And you guys got my back, right? Like, it's not because I drink wine, which is, you know, some of you do, but I just, uh, and if it's a two liter thing of wine, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to put it in a satchel next to me. I'm just going to ha- it's got a little cord. I'm going to hang it on the side of me. Sort of, I don't know. But I, was just, <laughs> I made a good effort to show you what it was like, but Amazon's a little behind these days. I couldn't afford the real one, though. I, I bought the fake one. I bought the $16 version because the real ones are like minimum 100 bucks, you know? And I'm like, what am I going to do with a $100 wineskin? Uh, but if Jesus were speaking in our day, he'd say, you can't play a DVD in a VHS player, all right? Something like that. That's what he would say. Don't get offended. He was just using metaphors that were close to home. You can't watch digital TV on an analog system. Something like that is what he is referring to. They don't don't, uh, function together. These comments are not a direct uh, comment or commentary, theology on what he's about to spell out in the future, but it is him absolutely pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah. He has come. He will go away through death and he will come back through resurrection. He will ascend to the right hand of his father. He will establish a new covenant. This is going to happen. And he's just sort of seeding that theology out there in these types of things. And, and sometimes we just think, well, this is about fasting. He, it's his response about wineskins and wine and cloth, old and new. It's not about fasting. He's wanting to help his disciples and also the Pharisees really truly understand who he is, why he came, and what that means. The new covenant is incompatible with the old. Look what Hebrews 8.13 says. It says about the old covenant, it's obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is what the Bible says. 
This is what the Bible says. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 talks about this. It says, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant And Jesus is trying to help them because he's the only mediator of the new covenant. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, none of these other religious leaders in the future will be the mediator of the the new covenant. Jesus the Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only mediator between God and man. That's why he says in Jeremiah, no one will teach their neighbor to know the Lord for they all shall know me. It's saying there is no other mediator between God and man. You can go straight to God through Jesus Christ. That's it. And it's sort of demoting all of these people that are confronting Jesus. Guess what, guys? You're all going to get demoted. All priests, all kings, all judges, all positions, you're all going to get demoted. And yes, there is leadership in the body of Christ, but they're servant leaders. They're not dictators. They're not mediators between God and man. They're people to serve. They're people to help. They're people with different gifts to equip the body of Christ for works of service. But the new covenant is that we can all know him and love him and have relationship with him. And the Pharisees didn't get that because they had a pecking order. They had a hierarchy. And that's what religion is like. Religion is like, who can climb the ladder and get to the top and be over other people? This is what Jesus told his disciples not to be like because it was like the Roman government, which was oppressive. He said, I don't want you to be like this. There's a subversive kingdom where I want you to come and serve. The son of man did not come to be served, but he came to serve. He's teaching his disciples, not a spiritual authority that condemns and lords it over, but comes under and serves. It's a totally different way. It's not about controlling everybody's life. It's about compelling their life by the spirit of the living God. It's powerful. It's it's so powerful. And Jesus keeps seeding this teaching throughout his confrontations. I I don't know if he loved it or not. I, I wonder if he sort of secretly enjoyed the confrontations with the Pharisees, but I will tell you this, Jesus loved the Pharisees. He loved them. He did not put them down. And when I, when I just begin to think about this passage and how often I can be one, I have got to know and believe that Jesus loved the Pharisees. I, I don't bring them up in these confrontations to somehow say that they were not loved by God. They just had profound misunderstanding. And Jesus, I think patiently, maybe not It didn't seem to exhibit that quality all the time where he was just sort of abruptly saying whatever he said. There were times where he just got straight to the point. I think that's how he was, but he definitely loved them deeply and profoundly. And and even in our legalism at times, if we find ourselves there, he loves us. He'll love us right out of that place. Remind us of the grace of God that changes us and everyone else, at least potentially. And my last and final point really isn't a point, but just a a close. Jesus's way requires us to change. I know that sounds a little odd and I wrote it that way for a reason, but follow me. In our passage today, the question was, why isn't Jesus and his disciples doing what we do? I want you to think about that real quickly. Jesus was asked, why do you guys not do what we do? You know what the real question should be? Why do you Pharisees not do what Jesus is doing? And that's really what religion and religious tendencies are all about. It's about looking at certain things, even right things, and saying, listen, um, we do things this way. Why aren't you uh, doing this the way that we are? There's a wall of separation. There's a hindrance in that relationship because of not the truth itself, but the way in which we go about these things. Jesus doesn't just fit into our life. We find our place in his. We find our place in Jesus's life. And I know that we come today with all kinds of backgrounds. We come today with all kinds of uh, different knowledge of tradition and upbringing and who we are and, and where we come from, what we've been trained and taught and believe for many, many years Some traditions are fine. I wouldn't come up here today as your pastor and tell you that you can't have them and you shouldn't have them. Certainly, we all want to live principled lives based on the word of God. 
And we don't want to call that legalism. Not at all. Not at all. That's not legalism. But if that turns into what Jesus never intended, it is the exact opposite of what he's called us to. As we live an obedient life before God, I say amen to that, but we can't use that as a judgment toward others. He does not, Jesus does not say amen to that at all. In fact, he wants to deliver us from that, where we see other people and we have a filter of where they're at and who they are and how they're living and what they're like. We, we want to see people with love. We want to see people with potential, with life, with really this prophetic sense of what God wants to do in, in people and that we have this privilege to come alongside the work of God in people's lives and they us as we're in this together. Salvation through Christ is a total surrender to the person and the provision of Jesus on our behalf. And I think today, you know, this story maybe represents people that follow God, um, or at least to the degree they understood him at that time. But I think also, like, it represents something that we see culturally. Today, people make up a God of their own mind, not a biblical version not the God of the Bible. I talk to people all the time, non-Christians all the time. I, I love talking to people. I love asking questions to folks outside of church. And, oh, you're not a Christian? Awesome. You're a target of questions for me. I want to know what you believe. I want to know what people believe. I do. And I'm not offended by it at all because when I understand what they believe and where they're coming from, then I know by, by what scripture teaches and hopefully the leading of the Lord, how to help and how to speak and how to encourage and and really bring the gospel in a way that's contextual. But people today, you know, when you start learning about what people think about God, where they got this from, I do not know. But today we live in a world that makes up a God of our own mind and may it never be that we do that because there can be tendencies for us to do those things as well and not stick to what scripture teaches, but sort of veer off into places that Uh, the Bible never intended. But I would tell you that what the Lord wants is he wants us to come back to a place where, and stay in a place where we see him, we love him, and he is ever before us. And he transforms us into his likeness. But we can't just try to be good people and think it's enough. It's never enough. We, We will never be good enough. That's the crux of the gospel is that we can't be good enough Jesus was enough and he is enough on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, proving that he was God's only son. And he rose to this heavenly reality, ascended to the right hand of the father. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he is coming back. He is coming back. And we get the privilege and opportunity to share the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, the gospel of Jesus that is the power of God unto salvation. It transforms people's lives. He came to provide a way back for each of us. And I know many of you, because I, I know who you are and you love Jesus, you believe in Christ, you are here today to say amen to the word of God and keep living for him. But if there's anybody here today that does not believe in Jesus and you're not forgiven of your sin and your relationship with him is not restored, I just don't want you to leave today without knowing that you can make it right. You can be forgiven. You can walk with Christ. He can be Lord in your life and he can turn things around. He is the God of the turnaround, absolutely and completely. And so I want to give that opportunity today and simply say this, if you're here and you are not forgiven of your sin, you're not right with God, you don't know him, you don't have a relationship with him, or maybe you'd say, I'm not sure. I I would say to you, if you're not even sure, after the service, our pastors will be up here and we want to pray with you we want to explain this to you. Uh, we, want, we want to receive you gladly and help you know Jesus Christ as Lord. Don't leave without making that decision today. Um, but for the rest of us, would you stand as we close? We'll be available for prayer at the end of the service. My admonitions of moving away from legalism are quite clear. I won't bring them up again. But while we were praying today, I had a few words. And let me share those with you as we close. Um, the first one is, I, there's somebody today you came, and I was praying about this, and this stuff comes to my heart and mind when I pray in the morning. Uh, this wasn't last night. This was this morning when I was praying. Um, somebody came here today, and you had a 
relationship with a person that you were following in the Lord, somebody that was discipling you, maybe it was a part of a church that you were, could be here for all I know, I don't know. But I had this picture where you were following someone and they were an example of Christ to you. They were a godly example to you. And uh, this person deeply um, hurt you in some way, in one way or another. And that feeling, that sting is still there. Uh, That sting is still there. And I want to tell you today that the Lord sees you and he wants to bring healing into that place. He wants to give you the capacity to forgive and release them and at the same time release you. Uh, This thing that keeps coming up and you've dealt with it, you maybe have tried to do do that yourself, but there's there's a hurt there and God can deal with that. He can help you out of that place where you're stuck. And so I'd encourage you, don't stay there. Uh, Jesus wants to help you right there. And the second thing I saw is um, somebody came today and you're struggling even being here. He did not want to come. Now, there might be many in, okay. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But I don't, I don't mean like you had, uh, you felt lethargic when you got out of bed today and you're like loved your bed. I don't, or you had a tough time with your kids. I'm not talking about normal life people. Okay. Uh, We all have that stuff. But I'm saying you came today and you've, you're, you struggled to get, like, even want to be, you're like, something is not right. There's a resistance to, and, and you can put it on church or you can put it on other things, but it's really a resistance toward God. It's, it's a resistance towards God. And God is probably changing some things in you and there's some stuff that's going on, some conflict that's inside, and that you don't, you don't have to understand it but you do have to yield it to him and he will transform it. He will. And I, here's what I wanted to say. And I felt this from the Lord was that he sees you. He sees you and he sees what it took for you to be here today, just to be here. It feels almost miraculous. And the struggle that's inside is very real to you. And I just want you to know, he sees you. He's got you. As you yield that to him, he's going to transform that thing. Turn that around. He's like that. He knows how to do that. So pray with me. Father, we thank you today in the name of Jesus that you see us, you know us, you love us. Father, I thank you that as we live principled lives to be disciplined followers of Christ, you say amen to that. We want to be obedient to you in every way. Uh, But Lord, we do not want to allow that to turn into legalism, tradition over truth, ritual over reality. We pray that you would safeguard us from that. I pray that you would veer us onto the path of life. If we're there, if we find ourselves in places of judgment over other people, qualifying their spirituality, putting them down, whatever might be happening, I pray that you would move us out of that place and into a place of freedom and love mentalism, not judgmentalism. Give us the grace to love on people. The same grace that saved us, Lord, let it flow through us like a river. So I pray freedom over us today that 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 would flow like a river, the river of living water. Thank you, Lord. And for those that I mentioned prophetically, uh, the person that was hurt uh, by a leader or even just another Christian, uh, their sting is there. I pray for healing power today. I also pray for the one that struggled being here. I pray for your touch, your divine touch. You can change that and you will because you brought it up. We thank you today for your love in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.